Hallo, grüß euch. Ich bin die Karin. Ich wohne in Wien und jetzt gerade rede ich kärntnerisch, also den Dialekt aus Kärnten in Österreich. Und ihr hört jetzt gerade die Fluent-Show. The Fluent Show, a podcast about learning languages and reaching your potential. Hello, my name is Kirsten Cable from fluentlanguage.co.uk and here on The Fluent Show I talk about languages, communication, curiosity and enriching our lives through the challenge of learning something new. I would love to know from you what new thing have you learned today in the last week? I don't know, in the last month. I hope it's more than just languages. Like, well, life is more than just languages and learning is more than just languages. But today, definitely on this show, we are going to talk about languages from a really interesting angle. I'm going to be talking about ELF. And I'm going to finally reveal ELF stands for English as a lingua franca. So English, but not as you know it. And I'm also going to dive a little bit into EU interpreting because my interview guest is an EU interpreter. And I'll tell you what, there was a long time in my life where I would I dreamt of being an EU interpreter. So she went and actually made, I don't know, my 18-year-old dream a reality. <laughs> and we are going to hear all about that from my guest, Karin Reithofer. Before that, I've got a few announcements. Number one... <gasps> It's Black Friday week. Oh my God. <laughs> like for some of you, this means it's Thanksgiving week in the USA. So happy Thanksgiving and all other festivals to all of those of you who do rest. And those of you who want to shop, who have been waiting around for a deal. I know a few of the, you are out there. Uh, you can have a look at a small number of deals that I have collected for you, including some of my own courses, such as my very own Language Habit Toolkit your ultimate resource for building consistency in language learning. My top tip, it's, it's really a rare offer. I don't offer this course a lot in any kind of offers and deals and sales, but in the Black Friday this year, we've got it. So head over there. And I've also collected a bunch of really cool offers and courses. And I'll tell you once, like enjoy the bargains responsibly. And you can trust that I have looked into and tested out each and every single thing that I recommend. I've actually looked at these myself and I keep my list small deliberately. Right, that's enough plugging. It is fluentlanguage.co.uk slash Black Friday. Go and have a look. Have a little window shop. I also want to give a shout out to our sponsor. They don't really need a Black Friday offer because you can always join them for free. They are Closemaster. Learning with Closemaster is fun. It's great language practice. The game is simple. You will see a sentence in your target language with something missing, and then it's your challenge to fill in the blank. Closemaster uses high frequency word lists, and they're built into sentences from real life. They're taken from the Tatoeba. Tatoeba. Nobody knows how to pronounce it wonderful database online so everything that you learn is actually natural content and it's always words you're actually going to need best of all Closemaster is available in over 50 languages five zero wow and it works on ios android and directly in your browser and you know where to go the link for you is Closemaster c-l-o-z-e-m-a-s-t-e-r dot com close or z-e-m-a-s-t-e-r dot com slash fluent show where you will also find a bonus video with me where I'll show you my setup and my Closemaster tips. So that is closemaster.com slash fluent show to learn more today. Now that's the announcements out of the way. You've got some got some wonderful websites to visit already and of course show notes as always you will find all the links that I've mentioned. Now in today's bilingual interview We are going, I interviewed somebody who is a speaker of my own native language. So we are going to be speaking, you are going to be hearing us speaking a bit of German and a bit of English. But don't worry if you're not a German speaker or a German learner, you will still be able to catch up. And I'm going to summarize after every sort of longer German stretch. <laughs> 
And in fact, apparently, according to the EU interpreter, I did really well at it. She gave me a gold star. So you don't have to worry. You're not going to miss out. In the interview, we talk about Karen's career as a freelance interpreter and also my theory about translators, interpreters and personalities. So stay tuned for that. And then we go into English as a lingua franca, who speaks it and the important question of who owns English. And we finish off with a mention of Brexit. What? Yes, it's a wonderful interview. She was a fantastic guest. I can't wait for you to discover this. So I'm going to stop rambling and waffling now and just go straight into the interview over with Karin Reithofer, EU interpreter based in Vienna. Hi, Karin. Welcome to The Fluent Show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, yes. No, it's fantastic to have you here. Now, I don't even know where to start because we have such an interesting topic today. I am so curious and I think I'm going to start by pointing something out. Karin, uh, what's your native language? My native language is German. Well, Austrian, if you want to. <laughs> um, yes, so... Ja, yeah, ich auch. Language. Oh, so ein yeah. Zufall. <laughs> so, <laughs> so ein Zufall. What a coincidence. And here we are, both of us speaking English to each other. And I think that's something that we're going to pick up on this crazy phenomenon, dass wir eigentlich deutsche Muttersprachlerinnen sind, aber miteinander auf Englisch reden. And that this is so normal. Yes, um, and I'm going to stop switching quite so much between languages. <laughs> but the fact that we two can do this, it's crazy. Right? But for you, switching between languages is pretty normal professionally, is that right? Yes, that's right, because I work as an interpreter, so I do switch between languages all the time. Um, and, well, it's, it's kind of normal for me. And, um, yeah, between several languages, um, so English, Italian, Spanish and Romanian are my working languages as an interpreter, and I usually translate them into German. Can you tell me a little bit more about your workplace? Well, I'm, I work as an interpreter on a freelance basis, and so I have different clients, but I mainly work for the EU institutions, so the European Parliament, the European Commission, and um, in Brussels mainly, but also in Strasbourg. And yeah, it's, it's a fun, fun, great universe that I work for. And it's really nice to, to work there, I have to say. But I also work at university and I teach interpreting at Vienna University. And so I have kind of two hats that I wear um, as a professional and as a trainer of interpreters, future interpreters, hopeful, hopefully. <laughs> No, I think it's really it's really interesting that you're mentioning the future interpreters there because that was going to be my next question. Like, how on earth? How does one become an interpreter? How does how did you become an interpreter for the EU? Such a prestigious job. Well, yes, it's 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 a nice job, and it yes, it's true that it's not that easy to actually get there. But yes, I quite when I was already it's cool I, I suppose I, I really realized that I really enjoy learning languages speaking languages and everything that's connected with languages traveling of course and so on and um, so I thought I want to do something with languages and <laughs> interpreting or translation um, if you want to was an obvious choice to um, to choose uh, at university And so I studied in Graz, um, interpreting, well, translation and interpreting, and then went on to do an MA in London as well, in conference interpreting. And then I went to Romania <laughs> and so on. And then in the end, I, I tried to do the so-called accreditation test, which is a test that you have to pass if you want to work for the EU institutions as a freelance interpreter. And I didn't pass it the first time around, I have to say, but I failed uh, brilliantly and was <laughs> invited again and then <laughs> passed it the second time around. And since then I've been working there and it's been, 
Yes, exciting, um, difficult at the beginning, but um, I really enjoy it very much. So even though you work as a freelancer, you actually trained for this job quite a lot. And, you know, you've studied it, you've got university degrees in interpreting. It really sounds like you had a very gradliniger, zielgerichtete, what's that in English? A very <laughs> straightforward career path. Well, yes. Um, it sounds maybe more straightforward <laughs> than it was <laughs> because obviously there were uh, along the way, I wasn't always sure I was going to do it. I wasn't always sure I was going to get there where I wanted to be. And um, well, going to Romania, that was really a choice I took because I only had three working languages when I finished a university and the EU said, well, three working languages, that's not enough for us. And then I applied for a grant they gave out actually to go to Romania, learn the language, teach there at university. And um, so I, I added this fourth working language and then was deemed good enough to even try the try sitting the test um so it wasn't always that sure that i was going to get there and but i was i was quite determined i guess because i realized already when i was studying that i really enjoyed doing it and yeah that was a good way of of, of getting a lot of work working for the eu mm. How did you keep your confidence up when you failed the test? Oh my God, don't ask me. That was a pretty, <laughs> pretty horrible um, time because I, obviously I was super demotivated afterwards and I thought, oh, I'm not good enough anyway. And we all know the imposter syndrome. And I thought, oh, now finally, <laughs> after the university, they told me I was really good. Finally, they found out I, I'm not. Um, but the good thing was that... Um, I was, when I said I failed brilliantly, uh, that was a bit jokingly, but um, they actually re-invited me for a, for a special training for people who just failed the test narrowly. And that obviously gave me some confidence that they did see some potential there. And, and then I did this two-week really intensive course in Brussels and then passed the test uh, after that. Ah. But it is difficult, yes, and you never know, um, am I really good enough? Yeah, difficult, yeah. difficult, difficult. Oh, <laughs> it's a question we all have in our head, and that's kind of why I'm asking, because you, I, I talk to so many language learners and people who are at the beginning, people who start to doubt. Um, a lot of people tell me they don't have the natural talent. I'm sure people tell you the same. Absolutely. And um, it, yeah, do you have natural talent for languages, do you think? Yeah, I think I do have some degree of talent. I think I'm not, you know, the most um, talented language learner in the world, but I, I certainly have seen, you know, comparing myself to other people that I had, it wasn't such hard work for me uh, compared to others. Um, but I also saw, saw other people who were much quicker than I was. So I'm somewhere in the middle, I guess. But the thing is, I always enjoyed it so much. I think that's a good sign if you mm. feel like you really enjoy what you're doing. And it's not only hard work. It's sometimes hard work, but not only. And you sometimes see the silver lining, at least. And I think that's a good sign to try and keep on the track. I couldn't agree more. I think out of natural talent or enjoying what you're doing... I would always take the joy and I trust that the joy is going to make me good or at least good enough at something rather than, I don't know, having a gift for something you don't even like. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I also tell people because there are a lot of students who say, well, I don't know if I should go for this career because who knows what's going to happen in 10 years time. And I say, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter as long as you do what you like. It doesn't mean that you're going to end up doing it really but at least in while you're at university while you are learning something you enjoy what you're doing and one day well that sounds a bit pathetic maybe but I think it one day it does turn out the way you want it to turn out because you do what you enjoy and I think that's that's just great to be able to uh, live like that mm-hmm mm-hmm And you being the you being an interpreter now and doing so much work, do you would you say you've achieved your dream job for now? What's yeah? 
don't know. How do you enjoy your job? Mm. Yes, I, I have to say that at the beginning when I started working as an interpreter, it was just total stress. So oh. every conference I was really nervous, even though I had prepared very well and I was never satisfied afterwards because it's just not an exact science. You're never going to have a perfect day where you always say the right word. You don't leave out anything. That just doesn't happen. But so at the beginning it was very stressful. And now I have to say maybe for two or three years now, I really feel like, yes, I'm I'm there and do well work as, as as good as I can and it's good enough <laughs> it's never perfect but it's good enough and I enjoy doing it and it's not only stressful it's really really nice and I, I quite like the situation to be honest um, as an interpreter there isn't really a lot of hierarchy especially if you're a freelancer obviously um, so I couldn't dream of, you know, becoming, I don't know, the head interpreter or something, then I'd have to be a, a civil servant for the EU and that's not nothing I really want to do. Um, at university, I, I'm a senior lecturer, so there I still, um, well, I could plan to be a professor, but that's not really what I want because it would mean that I'd have to do mainly I don't know, being a, a, a tutor for master theses or something like that. And that's not really what I want. I want to do the hands-on work. So at the moment, I'm quite happy where I am, I have to say. And um, the good thing about interpreting is that you are exposed to so many new things all the time because one day you have a conference about fisheries, then next day about railways and the next day about um i don't know housing or whatever so you don't feel like oh it's going to be the same old routine every day so you have the challenge anyway and i'm quite happy where i am i have to say mm. so i have a question that is coming up because i have previously been lucky enough to interview one of your eu colleagues but from the translation area uh, his name's Paul Kay and he's a he was a translator so we talked about translation <laughs> we talked about interpreting and I have done a master's in translation studies you know back in the back in the when I was at university days and this I worked for a little bit as a translator freelance translator and realized over time that it doesn't suit me at all mm -hmm. it doesn't suit me it's it's very detail oriented it's very um a qu very quiet job and then ha having learned a little bit more about you know the types of people that we get and the types of personalities i've developed this shorthand theory um <laughs> that i'm going to put to you <laughs> that, that curious interpreting, now it, interpreting is an extrovert's job and you know the way you're you're describing that you really like variety and you really like that stimulation of the topics changing. Um, I'm wondering if you if if you would be with me on that. And that translation is an introvert's job. It's it's quieter. It's more detail oriented. You get to go into into much more depth. Um, whereas as an interpreter, you you have to let things go. So that's my theory, um, based on nothing but guesswork. No, no, you 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 you're quite right. And there there have been papers written on that and oh, the, really? the diverging opinions on it. I can send it to you oh. afterwards. Yeah, I'm a scientist. But, um, <laughs> yes, I, 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 I've got this feeling as well and I feeling based also on, of course, experience and uh, knowing a lot of people who are interpreters and translators and you're quite right. You have to be quite extrovert to be an interpreter. There are also introvert interpreters, of course, but um, it's a I, I also see the difference in personality between interpreters and translators. Also, and maybe not only from this introvert-expert point of view, but also from a um, point of view of perfectionism. Because as you were saying, translators, they really have to go into detail. They have to find the right, perfect word, which in interpreting is impossible. You have to go for the word that comes to mind first. And it's often not going to be the perfect word. So people who are very, you know, who really want to find the perfect expression, they're very easily frustrated when they try interpreting. So I always say to students, well, if you 
have to choose between the two. Think about that. Do you can you cope with the feeling of not getting the right word sometimes and and but conveying the meaning, making communication possible. I think that's, you know, something you have to have to be an interpreter. Mm -hmm. But you're quite right with your with your um idea and theory. Ah, my guesswork theory or just based on what I observed in myself because I've only done a tiny bit of interpreting work and every single time I've done it, I was buzzing after. <laughs> like I really enjoy the intensity and the focus and I just loved it, really loved it. Um, but in the German-speaking world, so many people speak English, right? Yeah. Wir haben ja schon gesagt, wir sprechen beide gerade Englisch miteinander, obwohl wir beide auch Deutsch können. Um, und dann bleiben wir mal ein bisschen im Deutschen auch. Ja, yeah, gerne. Und also... Für dich als Interpreter, als Dolmetscherin, musste ich gerade schon, schon am Wort überlegen, <lacht> also für dich als Dolmetscherin, du kommst ja jeden Tag im Prinzip in Kontakt mit jeder Menge Leute, für die du eigentlich da bist als Ressource, mhm. um ihnen das, die Kommunikation leichter zu machen. Aber findest du manchmal auch, dass die Leute eigentlich sich selbst lieber ausdrücken wollen und denken, sie können es besser auch auf Englisch? Ja, auf jeden Fall. Also das ist so ein bisschen beim Englisch-Dolmetschen. Zum Glück habe ich ja auch andere Sprachen, wo die Leute dann eher das Gefühl haben, sie sind wirklich von mir abhängig oder wo sie wirklich das Gefühl haben, okay, ja, ähm, ich verstehe jetzt einfach kein Wort Rumänisch und dann brauche ich die Dolmetscherin. Während wenn jetzt jemand Englisch redet und ich das dolmetsche, da gibt es natürlich viele, die sagen, na, ich höre lieber das Original und, und auch wenn ich es jetzt nicht perfekt verstehe, ist mir das lieber. Ja? Das ist natürlich etwas, oder die glauben, na ja, das habe ich eh besser verstanden und warum hat die das nicht so eins zu eins wiedergegeben oder so etwas. Ja, das, das passiert durchaus. Damit muss man sich so ein bisschen abfinden beim Englisch-Deutsch-Dolmetschen, weil da halt jeder glaubt, er kann ohnehin besser Englisch. Und, und sehr oft wird es auch funktionieren. Das heißt, sehr oft sage ich auch durchaus, und ich glaube dann, ja, das ist dann auch unser Thema, sage ich auch durchaus, ja, das klappt jetzt wahrscheinlich ohne mir besser. Also das, das gibt es schon, ja. Mm -hmm. So I was asking Karin, um, whether she has come across people, since we're both speaking English to each other as German speakers and why, <laughs> that whether she has come across people who prefer to use the English language, rather than relying on the interpreter. And she says, yes, absolutely. This this is something that happens quite frequently, That and especially if you're working with English. So if she's working with her other languages, people might not feel quite as confident. But in English, a lot of people feel very confident. And also the audience feel feel that sense of confidence that they often might find fault with something the interpreter said or they might say well why did she say it this way i could have said it that way i understood it better um, and that's almost a phenomenon of english um karin anything to add no <laughs> no i totally agree that was that was a very good um interpretation actually <laughs> <laughs> and um that's kind of brings us to the the big topic i wanted to talk to you about this this week And I've been trying to keep, I've been trying to keep a little mystery around elf, around the word elf. So we are talking about elf. Are we talking about Christmas elf or what are we talking about? <laughs> yes, uh, you might think so. But elf is also an acronym for English as a lingua franca. So English as an international language, there are different ways of saying this, but in, um, English studies, this this acronym ELF has has now developed over, yeah, quite some time now already. What does it mean, English as a lingua franca? It means that English is used as a kind of vehicular language to allow communication between people with different mother tongues. So if an Italian and somebody from Portugal get together somewhere and they don't speak their respective languages, they use English as a medium, as a lingua franca, to communicate, even though mm -hmm. it isn't their mother tongue or even though they might not speak it very well. And you personally obviously came to this as a phenomenon rather than sort of a, a curious linguist at first, right? This, you encountered this happening to you all the time. Mm -hmm. And can you speak a little bit about 
the timeline or the history of this English dominance and what makes the real, what makes it so? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's it's quite obvious that it's linked to different ph phenomena and it, um, it in um, well different um, academics have already sketched this out that it is it's a twofold process. It's uh, on the one hand it's top down, of course, politically, British colonialism brought English to a lot of countries all over the world. Then, of course, the role of the US after the Second World War meant that the English language was just very powerful, or there was a lot of power, actual political power behind the language. And also, um, after the Second World War, especially the US uh, invested a lot of money in um, English learning abroad. So they really wanted to make their language strong elsewhere as well. And then, of course, globalization happened and so on and so, on, uh, and so forth. But on the other hand, well, this is kind of top down. So it's, you know, powerful people deciding and powerful nations having influence. But on the other hand, and this was also especially after the Second World War, um, it, there was a kind of bottom up process. So from the bottom up to yeah well and mm -hmm. everything else it was mainly <laughs> things like um films tv series pop music that was in english and that was so popular and people just thought oh that's i want to learn this language because then i can see this film or i can understand the the music that i really enjoy and then of course the internet came along new technologies that were quite linked to English as well. And mm. um, this also kind of made that there was just a real high demand for English and it was um, very, um, very clear that English means success, it means influence, it means hedonism and so on. So it was also, you know, connected to this innovation and so on and and people saw it as something positive to learn english and i think that's how it all started to you know become overwhelming maybe <laughs> yeah cultural capital right totally yes and when we're talking about cultural capital it kind of it's still linked in a way to the colonial power i, I don't well i'm saying britain as the colonial power and in the usa as we can't call them they didn't have their own colonies but they did have an awful lot of influence. And then there's the whole Second World War military power. Um, and I think about Germany and how Germany became so US directed after the Second World War, because obviously, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> because they really did have a strong influence and a strong presence, like, I guess, in the center of Europe. Yes. So this this makes me think then of the countries where there are so many English native speakers now, but they still don't get the same cultural prestige, like India, I'm thinking, maybe Nigeria, um, even in the Caribbean. And I mean, even in Canada, there's, we, we are still very culturally directed towards the USA and the UK, right? Yes, totally. And that shows you this top-down influence and how strong it is really because of politics, but of course also because of trade, of, well, business that's very strong in these two nations. So mm. they have a strong influence and they exert it also via language, which is, and there, I think that's quite interesting to see because people tend to think, well, language is, is just language, it's just communication, but it's also a really very efficient way of, of exerting influence on, on people. And I think in that case of English, uh, especially the US has done that in a very, very good way for them. <laughs> yeah. For, I mean, yes. And it really has, um, you know, it, it's, it does give you economic power. It does give you economic, like that investment in your cultural dominance, it pays off. And that's, it's fascinating to see in hindsight as well, isn't it? Yes. So I have a question about how people speak elf. I guess is there are there certain characteristics when you look at the the English as a lingua franca mm -hmm. um in terms of like vocabulary, lexis, accent choices, how people use English? Mm -hmm. Well, um 
if we talk about elf, maybe I should first um, explain a little bit what, why this whole research started in English studies about elf and what was the difference. Because you might know another acronym, EFL, English as a foreign mm -hmm. language, which is basically English that's um, learned by learners and that has, well, it's just English, but spoken by other people. And elf was... Um, well, just calling it English as a lingua franca already implied that it was some kind of empowerment as well. Because if we look at English now, we see that, well, there are different estimates, but there are around 2 billion people who speak English, uh, probably more, but that's, well, um, one of the estimates says two, 2 billion. And only one in five is a native speaker of English. So, the majority of English speakers are actually non-native speakers. And then English studies at a certain point said, hang on. Um, so, this minority of native speakers tells the majority of English speakers that, oh, that you make this mistake, you make that mistake, that doesn't work, that has a, it's a wrong pronunciation, that's a, a wrong, I don't know, tense or whatever. And they said, well, shouldn't we look at it as it is and just describe how English is used as a lingua franca between people who use it as a means of communication and very often succeed in doing that. And um, therefore, they said you can't really codify English as a lingua franca because it has such variety and it doesn't have really any real formal characteristics because it's basically negotiated in the moment. Because if you have this Italian and the Portuguese that we talked about before, they get together and they kind of try speaking English as good as they can. Um, and if one of them doesn't understand something, the other tries to say it in another way. So it's kind of negotiated uh, ad hoc, um, depending on the context, the speakers, why they're using it, and so on. And of course, there's a, a strong transfer from the first language of the speaker. So very often, uh, um, an Italian would use English words, but maybe an Italian idiom and um, and so on and so forth. Um, or a tense that he would use in a certain um, situation in Italian and just try it with, I don't know, an English tense. Um, but that means it doesn't really have characteristics that you can pin down. It very much depends on who speaks it, how well the person speaks it, in what context she or he speaks it. And, and this is um, the difficult thing about it because you can all call it all elf, but it's going to be extremely, you know, different because uh, mm -hmm. in theory we speak elf now, but I think, you know, we're both quite proficient in English. Um, and it could be yeah. extremely... Are we speaking elf or are we speaking English? Yes, that's <laughs> that's a question. And and it would look very different if, I don't know, somebody from... Or, I don't know, I tried to think of, of a person that you might know. If um, I don't know if you remember Giovanni Trapattoni, who was a football coach <laughs> in England. You know, he spoke elf as well. So And it mm -hmm. kind of worked. Mm -hmm. A lot of people laughed about him and there are tons of videos on the internet about how he spoke uh, English. But, um, yeah, it can be extremely different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is kind of mind-blowing because what it makes me think is we've got this one idea, belief out there that there is a correct way to speak English and that English is... Um, you know, like English, there's an ownership of English and that ownership comes from the culturally most dominant places. So it'll be the USA or, or maybe Britain, particularly, I guess, with European speakers or ex-colonial speakers. And then it comes down to whether you say, I don't know, Z or Z or aluminum or whatever. But so we've got the kind of, this is correct English. Mm -hmm. And I have often observed um, English native speakers 
kind of asserting that as well and correcting people in loca in locations on occasions where I felt very uncomfortable with them doing that. I felt like they're kind of flexing, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, we have got this fact that it's almost it's impossible though to empower elf English as a lingua franca speakers. Like right? we are acknowledging this isn't just you've learned English as a foreign language the way that you might learn for a test, you're not being assessed, you are using this as a means of communication. It's, it's a different purpose, which means you shouldn't be bound by the same rules, but because we don't have any rules to bind them by, we can't really empower them as much. Mm -hmm. No, you're totally right. And you, you used a word that's um, used in ELF uh, research and, and, and papers a lot, ownership, yeah? Who owns the language? If we think back about one in five native speakers, can we really say they still own the language? I mean, also, it was also, as I was saying, the, the US who wanted to establish English as an international language, and of course, the, the, the British Empire as well before that, um, saying, well, use this language as an international language, but then say, um, Yes, but hang on, you have to stick to our rules and we decide what's correct and what's, what isn't. I think that doesn't work anymore. And I think there's more, uh, obviously, there's still people who think, oh, no, I'm making a mistake when I, when I speak English. But there are more and more people that I observe, and it's mainly people who are not very close to linguistics and languages in general, and they're not maybe so aware of making mistakes, who say, well, the only rule is successful communication, the communication side has to work and as long as the other person understands me it's fine i don't need any other rules than um you know getting the message across getting what i want or getting the answer i want and that's basically a bit the idea behind this this whole thing that it's an international language it's it also belongs to you know everyone in theory who wants to use it and who is happy to use it and it's not the native speakers anymore who can decide how they use it because if this Italian and the Portuguese guy if they understand each other well I mean would it make any sense for a British person to come along and say oh, I'm sorry but you didn't use the tense correctly when they understood each other perfectly and, and joked and I don't know found the right way to wherever they wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Okay, dann frage ich wieder was auf Deutsch. Um, wie sieht es denn dann aus, wenn man an das Internet denkt und an, ich denke an geschriebene Kommunikation auch, die, wenn wir miteinander jetzt ähm, Englisch sprechen, dann geht es wirklich nur darum, verstehst du mich, verstehe ich dich und weiter. Und ab, ab die Post, ne? dein Portugiese und dein Italiener, die müssen sich nur gegenseitig verstehen. Aber wenn jetzt jemand zum Beispiel ähm, im Internet ein TikTok einstellt oder irgendein mhm. YouTube-Video oder so. Oder wenn jemand was schreibt und ist und benutzt Englisch äh, nicht konventionell oder nicht so wie der, die, Mut, der, die englischen Muttersprachler das machen würden, kann man dann auch noch, gibt es dann auch noch diese Elf, diesen Elf-Modus oder, oder geht, kann der wirklich nur existieren, wenn zwei Menschen miteinander kommunizieren und man direkt erkennen kann, ob die Kommunikation jetzt steht oder fällt? Ja, das ist eine schwierige Frage und das kann man theoretisch auch nicht so wirklich hundertprozentig mhm. beantworten, es kommt darauf an, was man erreichen will. Also wenn jetzt zum Beispiel irgendwie ein, ähm, ja, ich bleibe immer bei Italien, ein italienisches Hotel irgendwie seine Website auf Englisch übersetzt und das ist eben, klingt eben so, wie der Italiener mit dem Portugiesen gesprochen hat, dann hat das vielleicht natürlich, dann hat das natürlich mehrere ähm, Rezipientinnen, die man nicht ja. alle kennt. Da wissen wir nicht, ob die alle so fröhlich sind wie der Portugiese, der einfach nur verstehen will, sondern da gibt es vielleicht auch welche, die ganz pingelig sind, ob das jetzt Muttersprachler mhm. sind oder Leute, die besonders gut Englisch können sind. Und die dann sagen, das stört mich und das ist unprofessionell, in das Hotel gehe ich nicht oder so. Es könnte aber auch sein, dass jemand sagt, na ja, das ist aber eigentlich sympathisch. Ach, das sind ja diese typischen Italiener, die können alle nicht Englisch, um jetzt irgendwie mit so Stereotypen zu reden. Ähm, mhm. Also es kommt ganz drauf an, was man erreichen will, glaube ich. Ähm, mhm. Elf ist es auf jeden Fall. Man muss sich Aha. halt überlegen, welch, ob man so kommunizieren möchte oder nicht, was man, welches Ziel man eigentlich verfolgt. Mhm. 
Und dann geht es eigentlich wieder ums Prestige und auch ums Ansehen. Ne? Man will ja nicht als, als dumm angesehen werden oder ungebildet. Genau, absolut. Wobei mir schon vorkommt, dass, dass da die Grenzen ein bisschen fließender werden. Also ich glaube auch, dass da... Natürlich gibt es diese Videos von Politikern, die ganz schlecht Englisch können und ich muss sagen, dass es besonders im deutschsprachigen Raum kommt mir das sehr, sehr stark so vor, dass wir da schnell kritisieren und uns lächerlich machen über jemanden. Ähm, <lacht> äh, aber, aber ich merke schon gerade bei so, was du angesprochen hast, TikTok-Videos oder so, so kurze Videos, dass, dass es ganz oft äh, ähm, von Nicht-Muttersprachlern kommt und, und ich mir da auch denke, aha, okay, falsch, falsch oder das ist komisch oder so, aber das sind, ich weiß nicht, wie viel millionenfach geklickte Videos und das stört anscheinend dann die Rezipientinnen auch nicht wirklich. Also mir kommt schon vor, dass es sich da ein bisschen wendet, dass da ein bisschen schon man angef oder dass viele Leute da schon ein bisschen ihre, ihre Standards ein bisschen runterschrauben und nicht mehr das Perfekte wollen, sondern auch irgendwie die Kommunikation wollen und vielleicht manchmal ist es ja Ganz oft ist es ja so, dass die Nicht-Muttersprachlerinnen einander besser verstehen, als sie jetzt vielleicht einen ähm, Native-Speaker Schotten verstehen oder Ian verstehen ja. oder auch durchaus einen Native-Speaker aus, 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 aus England, der sehr Englisch, sage ich jetzt mal unter Anführungszeichen, spricht. Ja, als ich, also ich hatte, als ich nach England gezogen bin, hatte ich IELTS Niveau 9 konnte also theoretisch super gut Englisch ähm, und bin nach Nordwestengland gezogen, nach Lancashire. Ähm, und ich weiß genau, mein ich hab, bin dann irgendwie ins Rugby-Team eingetreten. <lacht> und mein, ja, mein Rugby-Coach hat immer mit uns gesprochen und ich habe kein Wort verstanden, weil der aus, aus der Gegend kam. Ich habe nichts verstanden. Ähm, und hatte eine Freundin, dann oder habe jemanden gefunden, mit der ich mich angefreundet habe, die kam aus London und die musste alles für mich übersetzen, die ersten zwei, drei Wochen. Also du hast recht, ist, nur weil jemand Muttersprachler ist, heißt das nicht, dass man die automatisch alle versteht. Ja, und auch, was auch in Elf ähm, so in verschiedensten Publikationen auch geschrieben wird und das ich sehr unterschreiben kann, es ist auch nicht so, dass nur weil man ein Muttersprachler ist, man eine Sprache perfekt beherrscht. Das heißt auch mhm. nicht, dass man nur weil man eben in England geboren ist und dort aufgewachsen ist mit Englisch als Muttersprache, dass man jetzt alle Facetten der Sprache gut kann, Texte gut schreiben kann in der Sprache, das heißt ja nicht automatisch. Und das wird aber so ein bisschen schon vorausgesetzt bei diesem sehr muttersprachlich-lastigen Bild von korrekt und inkorrekt. Ja. Mhm. So, I'll try to give a short summary. I was asking Karin about... Um how we how how and whether we can apply anything in terms of elf elf rules elf mode um when it comes to written communication and when it comes to the internet where we communicate globally so if you're making a tiktok or you're making a youtube video um as a non-english native speaker and you're doing it in english and your english isn't perfect Do you still count as elf considering some english native speakers may see it or is this is are we really just talking This is the main purpose is communication. You have to be able to tell if it works straight away. Um, and she said, yes, there are some blurred lines. There always will be, especially when it comes to written communication or also um, it depends on what the purpose is of what you are providing, where you're putting that communication in. So if you're an Italian hotel writing your website in English, then higher standards may apply again. And there's also the prestige factor of wanting to be seen as, you know, educated and not someone who makes language mistakes. Um, and we also talked about something that really needs to be emphasized, which is that just because someone is a native English speaker, they don't, that doesn't make them a perfect English speaker. That doesn't make them somebody who knows all the rules of English. Um, and in fact, that Italian native or Romanian native or Icelandic native might be a lot easier to understand and speak English, in fact, you know, in a more conventional manner than um, somebody who is, say, from Scotland or might come from Ireland. Um, or like I mentioned, when I first moved to England, I, I couldn't understand a lot of people in the city where I lived because it was just not usual for me to hear that kind of English. So the question there really comes down to this this really interesting question of, Who owns English and what is correct English? 
Karin. I'm going to ask you to double check me again. <laughs> You're great. You know, this is an hey. exercise my students have to do to kind of summarize <laughs> something they've just heard. And you just brilliant at it. You just get a straight A. <laughs> <laughs> Danke. <laughs> So a question, maybe I want to look to the future for a second and talk about you are somebody who works for the EU and uh, there was some talk and I'm just going to take this as a kind of my Aufmacher, my, my headline, um, but not to go into too much detail about this specific situation. But in the EU, obviously what's happened recently is Brexit. So one of your heavyweight English native language countries isn't isn't actually a member of the club anymore, which means the number of native English speakers, I think, is down to the Irish, which isn't isn't that large. So there was some, there was some like, I don't even want to say rumors, some sort of idle conversations and idle thinking exercises back and forth. Should everybody start speaking French? What's the official language of the EU now? But it certainly feels like English is staying. And my question here really is about the future of. English will English ever lose power is this is this our age what what do you see it being now and um, are there any insights you have into the future mm -hmm. yes that's that's a very interesting uh, thing you just mentioned brexit and so on and a lot of people then saying yes now we have to go back to Fran French and so on and this is just not how um, lingua franca communication works because nobody Of course, as I said, the US and the UK might have tried to establish English as a, as a strong language, but it also kind of happened. It wasn't always a decision. And the, the, the status that English has in the EU, for example, that wasn't a decision that the head of states or something uh, took. It was something that kind of happened slowly, uh, bit by bit. And mm. this is also why it was clear for everybody who works inside the EU institutions that it was, you know, completely uh, irrational or unlikely that um, English would go away. On the contrary, a lot of people said now that they're not the, uh, the British anymore who were there as, as you know, kind of privileged uh, folk when English was so strong and it was their mother tongue and so on. And now English is more of a neutral language. Of course, the Irish are still there and the Maltese also have English as um, as an official language. But um, it's now really a means of uh, kind of a more, um, I don't know, level playing field for everybody because it's everybody's non-native language Of course, the difference is, and it's always going to be the Swedes who speak it better. <laughs> I'm not going to say who not, um, but um, it's it's now even more more of a neutral way of communicating because you don't always look at the Brits there and say, "Oh, is that correct? How I used it, and can I say that?" But uh, you just, you know, you just see, look around the table, see if you've been understood and then um, it's okay. So I think in the near future, English is not going to go away. Um, it's so rooted in so many things, business, politics, but also, as I was saying, the internet technology is so English heavy that I don't think it's going to go away soon. And even though some people say, well, Chinese, um, China is going to be much more powerful in the future. Uh, yes, but Chinese is a very hard language to learn. So I don't think anytime soon that Chinese is going to be um, really a language that a lot of people are going to learn because it's really hard to get to a certain level, to get to that level um, where you can communicate, which is much easier in English to speak English really well of course it's it's mm -hmm. uh, you take some time but to speak English to just get by it's very easy well just quite or you can get there quite soon to this level and I think this is also why English is so um, ideal as a lingua franca and why it has expanded so so quickly because it's so easy to just find a few words and then communicate, ask for the way, um, read the menu or something like that. So I think it's not going to go away anytime soon. But this is my personal opinion. Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Other people might see it differently. 
English is also this sort of language that's incorporated a lot of, you know, it's got it's got a good bunch of Latin in. So for all the Romance language speakers, there's something there, but it's got a good bunch of Germanic root, of course. So for another big chunk of at least European natives, because again, I'm kind of thinking EU, it's it's handy, right? So it does. It's an interesting one. It's a really interesting one. Now, you said the the Swedes obviously speak it a little bit better and then, you know, some speak it better and worse. When you say better and worse, you're thinking in terms of how well they how well they achieved the goal of communicating rather than grammatically sort of grammatical perfection or test yeah. English, I would say. Yeah. Well, you see, I'm still I'm still also in my mind there's still this uh, English is a foreign language paradigm as, as well. And of course, I, when I sit in the booth and interpret, I say, oh, this is horrible English and this is so hard to understand because I am having a hard time uh, interpreting. But um, yes, it's mainly, well, it's also pronunciation very often um, and communicating as well. But um, I, I don't know, there are different, there's, there's a, a test um um i think it's called fset or something like that um that's done all over europe and there it's always the swedes the norwegians and so on who do best and and have the highest proficiency mm -hmm. in standard english again so the rules that um uh, obviously native speakers have um developed mm. um but of course, this also sometimes means that in lingua franca communication, they do better because there's more, well, a lot of other people know the rules too. And so they understand each other. This is this is fascinating. I don't know if this, I'm sure it's happened in history before, but maybe not on such a global scale that there is that much weight, social status, sociology associated with a language like everywhere, that to the extent where we've got international organizations where, like you say, like now the Brits aren't there, it's actually English is, is liberated. This is, it's a fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing this sort of insight. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, there have been lingua francas before, like Latin, obviously in the Roman Empire or French, as a diplomatic language, but you're quite right that it wasn't to that extent, especially this was usually spoken by an elite Latin or French. And with English, <laughs> no, it's... I'm thinking it's... about the life of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and in with English, it's just, you know, everyone. And everybody is so also quite keen on learning English. And I, I see it with young people. It's It's mainly... Um, bottom up because they want to mm -hmm. watch Netflix series in the original uh, or they want to understand the newest pop songs they're listening to and mm. yeah, I think it's that, that that mix and that fascination that that um, does it but I think in the EU and and maybe everywhere but maybe the EU is a good example for it I wouldn't say that English is going to be the only thing there ever because multilingualism is so important for the EU for you know the nation the different nations and also the diversity that it expresses and so on so i i don't think it's going to go away i don't think english is going to you know cover it all up it's there for communicating in certain situations but in others it isn't and and i see that very well as as an interpreter in, in, in meetings. Because if you have these meetings where they really just want to finish um, a directive or well mm -hmm. some um, piece of, of legislation and where it's really about the details and and how they put it. And there they, they do speak English because it's easier to do it directly, to speak to each other directly. But then there are so many other settings where for example uh, a politician speaks to a large audience and of course there he doesn't want to be seen as somebody who speaks uh, English or just about speaks English or makes mistakes or there he wants to you know address uh, the audience with different uh, rhetoric um, I don't know uh, rhetorics in general and mm. he really wants to 
not just get across a message, but actually he may might want to touch uh, people and 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 um, I don't know motivate them or whatever. So I think depending on the setting, um, there's still place or still enough space for both for multilingualism and elf, and I think that's that's important thing that. Um, both sides have to learn. I think when I was an interpreter first, I was like, oh, elf, no, 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 all these bad, uh, bad simple English speakers. It's much better if we do it and we interpret and they speak their mother tongues. And I've, I've come to this conclusion that it's, that's somewhere in the middle. And I think it's the same for those who say, oh, there should only be English and no other languages. I think it's, it's somewhere in the middle and there's a nice coexistence, I think, of both that work very well depending on the setting, depending on, on what you want to achieve or, yes, what your aim is. Mm. So we're thinking about the aim of the communication, about the purpose. And yeah, it reminds me of and, it, you know, you're making a point there as well, like straight that we can apply all the way through to supporting, maintaining indigenous languages. I mm -hmm. believe we're recording this on World World Day of Indigenous People, Indigenous Day. Oh, is it? So, yeah, I, ich glaube schon, I think so. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's it's all the way through, isn't it? It reminds me of this saying about you talk to somebody in well, I'm going to I'm going to butcher this um, <laughs> and make it, you know, it if you're talking to somebody in a language they understand it goes to the head but if you're talking to them in their language it goes to the heart i think it's attributed to mandela yes that's that's very nice that's a very nice quote and mm. uh, from the other perspective i i have a, a quote that's kind of saying the same thing but from the different uh, from the from a different perspective and it's by hans dietrich genscher actually who is a former german politician um well for the listeners not for you, you me, i'm sure you know that um and he said um in einer fremdsprache sagt man was man sagen kann in seiner muttersprache sagt man was man sagen will so in a foreign language you say you're able to say what you can say but in your mother tongue you say what you actually want to say and i think that's 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 something i really do notice very often in in elf communication that people kind of make themselves understood but maybe not just the way they wanted to say it and sometimes mm. making yourself understood might suffice and might be enough if you ask for the way or if you want to understand the menu or if you i don't know discuss something but sometimes you might want to actually say exactly what you what you're saying and this is something you can sometimes only achieve in your mother tongue not only but sometimes do you do you know what i i be, you know i work with english native speakers mostly who are learning another language for the sake of you know because they want to travel and stuff and very often the the most language learning materials courses apps, whatever, always presume that the purpose of learning English is comprehension. Oh, learning English, sorry, learning f to learn like French or whatever. You want to be understood on your holidays. You want to da da da. But I find so often when I work with people, the thing that they, 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 it doesn't feel enough. It doesn't feel satisfying. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like they can quite do it yet. And they keep wondering, why can't I do it? And I think you're, there's something that you're touching on there that I'm going to take into my work, which is this sort of, yeah, you can be understood, but can you express yourself? Do you feel like you can express yourself? And those are not the same thing. Yes, totally true. Yeah, oh. that's very interesting. Very interesting yeah, to see that today. from language learner's point of view as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I know the feeling myself as a, sp a speaker of foreign languages that very often... You know, I'm, I might be able to get across what I wanted to say, but not completely, yeah, not, uh, not express totally what, what I, what I felt, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, yeah, yes, that's, that's interesting to see that from a it's language a learner's perspective. It. It's, it absolutely exists. And I think it's, it goes a long way towards explaining why, no matter how many courses we take, no matter how many, phrase books you own or whatever you're not quite hitting the spot and it's because they all 
serve a slightly different purpose. So I'm going to take that and, and mull on it a little bit longer. Um, but we are running out of time far too quickly. Karin, thank you so much, first of all, for being on the show. Um, I always have a last question. Die machen wir aber noch auf Deutsch. <lacht> <lacht> so, meine letzte Frage an meine Gäste ist eigentlich immer, wenn es was gäbe oder wenn du was ändern könntest an deiner, sagen wir, Sprachwelt, was wäre das? An meiner Sprachwelt? Oh. Ja, erstens würde ich gerne nicht zu hohe Ansprüche an mich stellen, <lacht> an meine Sprachkenntnisse. Aber das ist halt natürlich, weil ich eben wirklich als Sprachexpertin arbeite, habe ich natürlich auch sehr hohe Ansprüche an mich selbst, die manchmal wahrscheinlich die Kommunikation ein bisschen behindern, weil ich zu viel will oder zu perfekt sein will oder zu perfekt sprechen möchte. Und ja, was ich noch ändern würde, wäre, oh, ich würde noch so viele Sprachen gern lernen. Ähm, ja, also da unendlich viele ja, und ganz schnell am besten. Also falls du da Tipps hast, sehr gerne. <lacht> ich muss mal suchen. Ja. <lacht> überleg, überleg, ob du dich ausdrücken willst oder verstanden willst. Ja. <lacht> <lacht> um, und wenn, wenn wir an die weitere Welt denken, steht dir da irgendwas um, raus, das du ändern würdest oder das du gerne ändern könntest? Bei Sprachen meinst du? Ja, in Sprachen und die, wie die Welt kommuniziert. Und wie die Welt kommuniziert. Also ich hätte gerne äh, eines, auf jeden Fall, das hat jetzt eigentlich gar nichts damit zu tun, aber ähm, das sehe ich immer wieder, dass Sprachen so ganz unterschiedlichen Status haben. Ja, wie zum Beispiel eben Englisch ganz mhm. toll, oh, ich kann Türkisch, naja, wenn interessiert oder so etwas. Und das finde ich irrsinnig schade. Und das geht aber natürlich auch auf die Leute über, die diese Sprache sprechen und äh, ihre eigenen Mutter- oder Herkunftssprache dann vielleicht gar nicht sich trauen, viel Status zuzugestehen, obwohl es so toll ist. Ich finde es wunderbar. Also ich habe ganz viele Studierende, die mit tollen Sprachen irgendwie von ihrer Familie herkommen, aber die die gar nicht pflegen, weil sie denken, na ja, braucht eh niemand. ja, ähm, Mazedonisch oder so etwas. Während das eigentlich toll ist und jede Sprache doch natürlich politisch nicht so viel wert ist, das ist klar, aber doch auch so viel an Reichtum ist und das hätte ich gern, dass auch wirklich Menschen Sprachen gleichwertig sehen als als wahnsinniges wahnsinnigen Reichtum, den man hat, egal welche Sprache das ist und wie viel wirtschaftliche Macht dahinter steht. Das ist ein schöner Wunsch, dem stimme ich zu, der ist, der ist toll. <lacht> so, I asked Karin, Briefly, um, what her wish would be, you know, my question, if there was something that you could change about yourself, about the world. Um, and for herself, um, she would like to have reduced perfectionism, of course, <laughs> and sort of address her standards that she puts on herself, but she, but recognizing that she is a language professional. So she's used to performing and setting herself high standards, but feels like it might sometimes get in the way. And the... I asked about the wider world as well. And there, the one thing, if you could change it, um, Karin, um, would be to have every language in the world or have multiple languages have similar status because it's still true that English, for example, has a much higher status than saying you speak Turkish. And this even shows in native speakers or speakers, heritage speakers, etc., not valuing their own languages as much when actually these are such wonderful languages. We've got, you know, no matter if you're from Montenegro, from Turkey, wherever you're from, it's it's understandable that there might not be the same economic value, the same perhaps political value, cultural capital we mentioned earlier, but it would be, it's so important to keep these languages going and to celebrate and to um, enjoy the absolute wealth of languages that we have in the world. And I think that's a really lovely wish as a as a closing comment. <laughs> well, you just did the summary brilliantly again. You, re you would really be a good interpreter, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, if this podcasting uh, stuff kind of goes, <laughs> goes south, this is good. I know what I'll apply for. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, 
It's time to say goodbye then. And here on the show, I always sign off in uh, the same way. I say it's goodbye from me in English and then it's goodbye from my guest. And you get to say goodbye in whatever language you choose to say goodbye in. Um, so, Karin, vielen lieben Dank. Um, I will, of course, have you in the show notes so people can find out more about you. We'll put your website, etc. Is there anywhere on social media you want people to connect with you? If they, I don't know, want an interpreting job too, if they want to study with you or learn more about this? Um, on social media, I'm I'm quite a, a private person, but I have several, well, my email address or my, my official uni uh, account will, of course, be in the notes. Perfect. So that's fluent.show. Let me just check, listeners, what are we on? Fluent.show slash 227. And you're going to be episode 227. And with that, it is goodbye from me. Goodbye. And goodbye from my wonderful guest, Karin. Also, auf Kärntnerisch. Viert euch. Macht es gut. Schön was. Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please support the show by subscribing for new episodes and leaving a rating and review in your podcast app. You can visit us at fluentlanguage.co.uk anytime. Don't forget that you can send us your questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or you can find the show on Twitter and say hello over there. It's at The Fluent Show and on Instagram it's hashtag The Fluent Show. We're always happy to hear from you and we read every message and review. See you next episode!